We are in the book of 1 John, and I hope you're there. If you're not, please take a moment to turn there. And we are in 1 John chapter 2. As I stated, uh, the message title for this morning is, What You Believe Matters. In the second chapter of the first epistle of John, John is going through a series of tests in which an individual can uh, take to determine if they are in Christ or if they are not. Again, the purpose for him writing this letter was that you may know that you have eternal life. So that's our goal. We want to know that we have eternal life. Not just guess, not think that we do, uh, not wonder if we do, but really do. We want to know, right? And we want to know for sure this is too important can't leave this for another time, can't procrastinate forever, because death will catch up to you. We need to know beforehand. He then gave us the test, which was a moral test, and stated that one who is truly in Christ will look to be obedient to the Word of God and to the commandments of Christ. Secondly, he took us through a social test to see if we were truly going to love our brothers and sisters as Christ has loved us, stating that one who does has been radically changed by Jesus himself. This morning we get into the third of the three tests. It's a theological test. Basically summed up, what you believe matters. Today, more than ever, we as Christians need to know what we believe and why we believe it. As I stated earlier, many Jesuses walk through our culture today. In fact, there are many who will say, I believe in God and feel that to be sufficient. There is no character or identity or nature or essence to that God. It is just, I believe in God, thinking that either it doesn't matter what his character, essence, or nature is, or simply that I haven't assigned a character, nature, or essence to him myself. These Jesuses that have been created by personal opinion and uh, cults that have derived and come out of Christianity, such as the Mormon church, that might sound harsh to you, the Jehovah's Witnesses, they proclaim a Jesus Christ that is incapable of saving anyone. And John would go one step further. He would call them antichrists, believe it or not. Now, I've been called by the Jehovah's Witness an apostate. I've been called by individuals proclaiming the Mormon faith as one who is unenlightened. And by Christians, I've been called one who has been saved by grace. John wants you and I to know that what we believe concerning Jesus Christ matters. Today, we love to live in the shadow of ambiguity. We love to use words and assign our own definition and meaning to those words. 
but the scriptures tell us clearly who Jesus is, who God is, and it is the scriptures that carry the authority to do so. One individual wrote in a book, he said, any teaching that distorts the true nature, character, or essence of God is heresy. Any teaching that distorts the true nature, character, or essence of God is heresy. It wasn't enough that they just assigned a name to their belief. I believe in Jesus. They also needed to understand who Jesus was and is today. Jesus told his disciples, I am the perfect representation of God the Father. If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. And all theological doctrine is encapsulated in that idea, the character, nature, and essence of God. So what we believe matters. Now specifically, John was targeting a problem back in his time, in his culture, because many were departing the true faith and they were embracing an idea of God, a pseudo-intellectual idea of God that now we see were, was the primary or basic beginnings of Gnosticism. And the Gnostics did not believe that any physical matter could be divine in and of itself. That anything that was divine, anything that was perfect, could only be spirit alone. So they had two understandings of Jesus Christ. They acknowledged his superior essence and nature, but didn't know how to define it. So they looked at him and said that he either A, was a ghost, an apparition himself, never truly having a physical form. And John refutes that from the very beginning, saying not only did we see him, hear him, but we touched him. We handled him. He had physical form. So then they went to say that, well, what happened was, is that at his birth, the Christ Spirit came upon him, and then right before his physical death, the Christ Spirit left him. And John says, no. John is defending within our text this morning the doctrine of the incarnation. That Jesus Christ was 100% God, and a hundred percent man from the time he was born till the time he died. It was God who died on the cross that day for our sins. And John is saying that those who are leaving to embrace this false understanding of God, they are just simply indicators that we are living in the last days. And we begin here in verse 18 writing to us as he begins with his enduring term, children, it is the last hour, and so you have heard that Antichrist is coming. The apostles, the, the early followers of Jesus Christ through the apostles' teaching, all anticipated the return of the Lord Jesus Christ in their time. And to usher in the time just prior to his return, they expected one called the Antichrist, the man of sin, the man of perdition, 
the perfect personification of evil to usher in the last great heretic thrust to cause the greatest apostasy, a move away from true Christianity that the world has ever seen. And so in their anticipation, John is now creating a context for us, saying that what is happening before us is simply an indicator that we are living in the last days. Now some of you may be concerned that the last days have been the last days for a long time. And you would be correct. In fact, it is the book of Acts that tells us that the last days started and began with the coming of the Holy Spirit. In Acts two sixteen through 18 But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out My Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. But notice that Joel says that this is the beginning of the last days. The last days started 2,000 years ago, and have been ticking down ever since. We are 2,000 years closer to the return of Jesus Christ than ever before. I believe that there is no prophetic fulfillment that needs to be fulfilled before Christ returns for His church. And therefore, we need to understand that we, like them, live in the last days and we are going to see perilous times within this period of time. And we need to be prepared. As they anticipated the rise of the Antichrist, an individual spoken about not only in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament alike. And when we talk about anti, we're not talking about just one who is instead of, we are talking about one who is opposed to, of, I should say, opposed to, and in place of. It is an individual that will Uh, allow himself to be worshipped and exalted by the populace to the point that the Bible tells us that he is going to enter into the rebuilt temple there in Jerusalem and he's going to demand to be worshipped as God. But then something happens. (laughs) Uh, That is when the book of Revelation tells us that we can anticipate with clarity the return of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament called him in Daniel the little horn. Zechariah called him the worthless shepherd. Jesus alluded to him and said it is he who is going to set himself up in the temple and cause the abomination of desolation. Paul called him the man of sin. And if you would turn with me in your Bibles, I'd like you to read for yourself in 2 Thessalonians. I bring you this portion of the Bible to your attention because of an attitude that I see creeping within the church today. That attitude seems to reflect an indifference towards biblical prophecies, specifically those of the last days. 
Yet anyone who is honest about their study of the Word of God would have to admit that almost every New Testament book, almost every one out of the 27 talk about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul the Apostle uniquely wrote about this in First and Second Thessalonians. And I draw this to your attention because of the uniqueness of this discovery. The fact is, is that Paul had very little time in Thessalonica, the town in which he wrote this letter to. In fact, scholars believe that Paul was only there for three weeks and it was a brand new church with brand new Christians. And Paul felt it necessary to educate them about the end times in their infancy. So if it was important for Paul to teach new believers about the return of Jesus Christ, how much more so for us who are mature believers to have an understanding of the manner in which eschatology, the study of the last days, unfolds in the Scriptures? There are many who believe that these events cannot truly be known. There are many who say because there are such vast differing opinions about the last days, we should not, should not be dogmatic about these things. I agree with that, but I would say let's not move from being dogmatic about them to completely indifferent about them. That's the extreme measures that we like to uh, operate between. We're not going to be dogmatic, so we're going to go to this place over here where we're completely indifferent, right? We can't do that. We need to be students of the Word of God. We need to look at what the Word says, and we need to prayerfully consider what the Word means. Verse 1 of chapter 2, writing to these new believers in Thessalonica. They believed that they were in the last days because a letter apparently from Paul had come to their attention and they were worried that they had somehow been left behind. So Paul writes to them, he says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus and our being gathered together to Him, which I believe is a reference to the rapture of the church, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion or the apostasy comes first. That is the great falling away. And notice what he says next. And the man of lawlessness, the son of perdition, the man of sin is revealed, the Antichrist, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things, and you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time? For the mystery of the lawlessness is already at work." Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one, the Antichrist, will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. 
The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan. With all power, false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. Because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who do not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Sobering words. But he clearly tells us that the Antichrist, the great falling away, will come and precede the day of the Lord. Right now we are in the day of man. But the day of the Lord is when God takes everything back and He begins that process by the judgment of this world. John states that not only are we anticipating the arrival of this man of sin, the Antichrist, the son of perdition, but now many Antichrists have gone out from us. And he seems to be indicating by that statement that there are those who have left the true faith to embrace a false god. One who is uh, imposed of Jesus, he is opposite to Jesus, and he's in place of Jesus. And John calls them antichrists. Now the second warning that we need to heed as believers in Jesus Christ is the fact that the Bible is also replete with passage after passage, verse after verse, warning us of the effect of false teachers and false doctrine upon the Christian church. When a false teacher begins to teach falsely, like he will or she will, they then create false conclusions that they deliver to the people. And based upon those false conclusions, people then create false expectations concerning God. And often it is within the context of those false expectations that people stumble the worst. Because someone has said something, someone has promised me something, someone has taught me something about God and they concluded it and I believed it and I set an expectation according to it and then when it didn't come to pass and when it didn't happen, God let me down. No. The false teacher let you down. The false teaching let you down. The false expectation let you down. So the only way that we as believers in Jesus Christ can be prepared to see and to identify false teaching is by knowing the truth so thoroughly that when the false comes across our path, we can recognize it immediately, immediately. Many of you know that if Satan can manipulate God's Word, he can then create all kinds of fun, horrific, lethal doctrinal heresies. They are currently working on a translation of the Bible that turns God from male to female. How fast do you think that will be embraced once it is published? Though they now admit right now they are having a hard time finding a publisher, I bet within, oh, just a reasonable amount of time that Bible will be printed, that there will be lessons created about it, and so forth. 
Because it doesn't matter because, you know, God is neutral in gender. Is that what the Bible teaches? No. They're creating a false God that cannot save. Paul the Apostle is just one of many who warns us. I want to take you through these verses, if I may, because I think it's so important that we understand this. 1 Timothy 4.1, Now the Spirit expressively says that in the latter times, which we've just discovered that we are in, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Paul warns us. Peter warns us. 2 Peter 2.1 But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even, look at this, denying the Master, Jesus Himself, who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, stated in Jude 4, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensual sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Warning after warning after warning are found. Be careful, false teachers. Be careful of false doctrine. I by no means am stating that Calvary Chapel is the only Christian church teaching the truth. That is not true. There are many, many, many healthy churches across the world today. Though we need to be careful, because as we grow closer to the return of Jesus Christ, the Bible would seem to indicate that things are going to get more cloudy as we go forward. As one said it so adequately, things are going to become as clear as mud to us. The Bible says that even the elect may be deceived in this last day. Let us be careful. How serious were the early Christians about the Antichrist and the coming of the false one and the teachings that would be uh, proclaimed by him? I went back into the annals of history and I looked at some of the followers of the disciples. I wanted to see how the, the um, protégés of the disciples reacted to the understanding of the Antichrist. And one particular, since John wrote this, I thought it would be interesting to discover what his protégé walked away from. What was his takeaway from everything that John wrote to make sure that we're interpreting it the same way that he interpreted it when John originally stated it. So that brings us to the individual named Polycarp. Polycarp was the protege of John, the Apostle John. And Polycarp stated this in his writings. He first stated concerning this figure known as the Antichrist, he said, For everyone who shall not confess that Jesus is come in the flesh is Antichrist. He is saying that anyone who denies the true nature, essence, and character of Jesus Christ is Antichrist, meaning opposed to, in place of. But then he went on to clarify this in two more warnings. Whoever shall not confess the testimony of the cross is of the devil, he said. 
meaning the death and resurrection and the and the price that was paid there at that moment, understanding the true understanding of atonement and so forth. And then he went on further to say, and whoever shall pervert the oracles, that is the word of God. He then goes on to say, to his own lusts, and they say that there is neither resurrection nor judgment, that man is the firstborn of Satan. One thing Polycarp did not learn was political correctness. They're of the devil. They're of Satan. Because they understood where this heresy, false teaching originated from. It originates from the pit of hell. That is our true adversary as Christians. And so Polycarp heard John well. And we are reading him accurately today, 2,000 years later. One wrote in light of this, he says, It is clear that the early Christians kept their eyes open for opponents of Christ and the Christian message. The expectation of a satanic usurper, uh, uh, usurper of God's earthly kingdom is widespread in both Christian and Jewish apocalyptic writing. Think again now what Paul wrote when he said, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion, the apostasy, comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Now many of you may be curious after we read 2 Thessalonians 2 about the restraining force that is keeping the Antichrist in check. It makes it a sound as if the Antichrist is here. Well, the spirit of Antichrist is here, Satan himself. But what's keeping that in check? There's been a lot of conjecture and speculations over the centuries concerning the, identif- the identity of the restrainer. I personally believe that the identity of the restrainer is none other than the Holy Spirit working through the church. And when the church is removed, the Holy Spirit will then release his restraint allowing the Antichrist to come and to proclaim himself. And in chapter 6 of Revelation, at the beginning of the tribulation period, we see a false uh, rider on a white horse coming, not with a sword, but with a bow. And that, I believe, is the, uh, the rising of the Antichrist to, to the prominent position in which he will hold in the last days. Now, you may be worried holy cow, if all this is going on, how in the world can I protect myself to make sure I know the truth? Because one who denies the truth is going to abandon the truth. One who is unsaved is going to abandon the truth as they are challenged by the onslaught of false teaching that the world would offer. Notice with me in verse 20 of our text in 1 John. But the save embraced the truth. Notice what John says, But you have been anointed by the Holy One. He is speaking of the Holy Spirit. And you have all knowledge. And we'll talk about that in just a moment and what he means by that. And I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And because no lie is in the truth. They had the truth. And they see this departure and they see many going now for this false teaching. 
And now, of course, when you see something like that, you would begin to question, do I really have the truth? Do I really know the truth? This is all so new to me. Maybe I should be going with them because they seem so enlightened. They seem so uh, knowledgeable. They seem so influential. They seem so intellectual. Maybe I should be moving to there. And John says, you've got the Holy Spirit. You know what is true. And we know that those who are leaving are departing to show that they were never truly of us, which he'll state in just a moment. If you turn back with me to verse 19 of our text, John writes, As we know that we are in the last hour, those who left, verse 19, they went out from us, but they were never of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they were not of us at all. John is saying this simply. If they were truly saved, they would have continued with us. And I want you to write a word over this particular section of your Bible or in the margin of your Bible, the word continue. It's a word that is displayed in many different ways throughout this passage. One who continues. The one who is not truly saved will uh, discontinue his walk with the Lord. The one who's truly saved will continue in his walk with the Lord. When I asked my pastor, how could I know for sure that I am truly saved? He says, you will know for sure if you continue in the Lord. Quoting this passage. But notice what John says about the character and the the identity of these individuals. It's not that they knew the truth, embraced the truth, and were saved by the truth, and then they left. It's that they were never of the truth. And this parallels perfectly the, the sower of the seed and the number of individuals that the seed had no effect upon or had just a minimal effect upon, but it was only the one that produced fruit that was truly saved. These individuals left. And in the wake of their departure, it left people questioning and doubting possibly where they stood. And John's saying, don't be disturbed by this. Know that this had to happen. It is part of the identity of the last days. It is the beginning of this great departure, he is saying. And truly, it is only demonstrating that they were never truly of us, for if they would have been of us, they would have continued with us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, he says. And you, know, you have all knowledge. And I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is in the truth. Their defection and the erroneous doctrine in which they embraced demonstrates that they were never truly of Christ. So our continuing in Christ is great evidence that we are truly saved. One who is unsaved will abandon the truth. One who is truly saved will embrace the truth. I like what one wrote. In other words, the gift of the Spirit includes illuminating work of the Spirit. This illumination gave these believers insight about the truth, an appreciation for it, an application of it that those without the Spirit lacked. But it provided more. The anointing granted to them genuine knowledge of the truth. 
cognitive content of the truth and an intellectual grasp of the information and facts of the truth that those who did not have this illumination simply did not possess. The illumination that the Holy Spirit provides the believer in Jesus Christ allows them access to the knowledge of God. And though one believer may know more than another believer, it's not because the one has special access to knowledge and the other does not have special access to knowledge. It's just that one has learned and one has still growing. So never let an individual tell you that God has told me a secret. And he's not going to tell all of you because he wanted to tell me only. And I've written a book containing the secret. And for the low price of $1 million, I will sell you this book that will provide the secret and the, it'll connect all the dots concerning God. Now, he's not going to tell you, but he told me and I want to make it available to you for this low price. Run, run, and run away faster. Whatever God, whatever knowledge God has given us through His Word is accessible to every believer anointed with the Holy Spirit. How do I know I've been anointed? It's because God's given you the Spirit from the day you came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. That's why I believe that the Bible in the hands of a plowboy is more effective than any pope grasping to the traditions of man. That's a quote from Martin Luther. It's not that individuals have a perfect knowledge, but rather that they have a capacity to recognize what is true and what is not. Yet thus the youngest, simplest believer has the capacity to discern in divine things that the unsaved philosopher would never have. The Christian can see more on his knees than the worldly can see on his tippy toes. That's so true. In verse 22, as John continues, who is the true liar here? I'm adding that because the manner in which it is written in the Greek. But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. It is impossible to have a relationship with God apart from Jesus Christ. It is absolutely, utterly impossible to do so. For Jesus said Himself, And they said to Him, Therefore, Where is your father? And Jesus answered, You know neither me nor the father. If you knew me, you would have known my father also. It is impossible to know God apart from Jesus Christ. It is impossible to interact with God apart from Jesus Christ. It is impossible to restore one's relationship with God apart from Jesus Christ. So when someone rests in the shadow of ambiguity and states, I believe in God, let us ask a qualifying question. Who is that God? What is their name? 
Because there's only one name under heaven that can ever save anyone, and that is Jesus. Push the issue. Don't let them sit there and and wallow in their self-deception. Because again, when we talk about the liar, we are talking about one lying to themselves. Don't be satisfied when someone says, yes, I believe in God. Yes, I believe in Jesus. Push the issue. Who is Jesus? What has he done for you? What is the gospel? How do you know that you are saved? Don't leave it for the last moment. Don't leave it until, you, uh, until they are rocking the annals of uh, death. Just take the chance to ask them that question. Love them enough to ask them that question. Because what we believe matters, right? What we believe matters. And there is only one Jesus that is capable of saving. These individuals, the unsaved, deny the truth, the identity of Jesus Christ. They think they have God, but they do not. But the one who is saved abides in the truth. Verse 24. Let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. He's referring to that first initial exposure that they had of Jesus Christ through the gospel, through the apostles. He is saying that which you have heard from the beginning, not this new thing, but that which you've had from the beginning, continue in it. The word abide is a word that we must define because it that definition, the understanding of that word is going to be imperative for everything that John says from this point forward. That which you have heard from the beginning, abide in you. Let it abide in you. Continue in you. That's what he is saying here. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, continues in you, then you too will continue in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He made to us eternal life. There is no other place that you are going to find, discover, or obtain eternal life apart from Jesus Christ. So He is stating here, continue in what you have heard in the beginning. And if you continue what you have heard in the beginning, and that, that word continues in you, you will then abide in the Son and abide in the Father. So how much does it mean? When we say what we believe matters, everything, right? Everything. Verse 26, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you have received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. John is saying that these individuals are claiming to have special knowledge, special revelation concerning God that is necessity, that is necessary for salvation. This information is apart from what the Christians have. It has been divinely revealed to this special group of people and only by joining their club, their cult, will this truth be made known to you to allow you to truly inherit salvation. John is saying just the opposite. You've received the Holy Spirit from the beginning and everything you need to know about Christ can be found in Him. 
Why? Well, he's saying this because the Word of God is still being compiled, isn't it? The New Testament isn't complete yet. And so there was a high uh, dependency upon the Holy Spirit to guide them into all truth. Now, I don't believe that that has ceased. I believe that an individual who has the Holy Spirit can sit down with the Word of God and be taught by the author themselves. If I may, take just two minutes of your time to share something with you that I'm gravely concerned about. I am gravely concerned that we are minimizing that reality in the body of Christ today. I am gravely concerned that we are inadvertently telling people that we must rely on intellectual scholars who are more knowledgeable than us to understand the Word of God. Now, I work with, you know, I I read scholars every week to get further insight into the Word of God. But before I do any of that work, knowing that they are a fallible person just like I am, I spend hours reading the text and praying over the text and letting the Spirit lead me through the text first and foremost. And then I go to resources by individuals that hold the same position I do and counter views of my position so I understand where they're coming from as I'm working through the text. But what I am seeing today, I am seeing a move away from this simple relationship between the believer and the Spirit of God through the Word of God. The reason I'm concerned about this is that one of the foremost issues that the reformers had 400 years ago is that they wanted to remove the hierarchy and the dominance of the Catholic Church and their understanding of the Bible imposed upon the layperson. They kept the Bible in Latin so only the real educated could read it. And Martin Luther says, let's try to put the Bible in every language. And one said, well, what would that accomplish? And he said, we would have more Christians. They wanted to remove that hierarchy. And my concern is today is that Christians now are running to the scholars And simply because of the degrees and the lofty titles in which they carry, they are being swayed in their doctrinal understanding of the Bible, even when it grossly contradicts it. So I am saying to you this morning, let no one rob you of that simplistic, profound truth that one who has the Holy Spirit is capable of reading and getting at least a general understanding of the Word of God. And then if you need further information, dig for it. And of course, utilize those that may be more educated than you, but don't simply be dependent on those. Be dependent on God. Let no one steal that from you. Will you make that promise to me? Let no one steal that from you. In fact, I'm going to go one step further. Everything that is taught from this pulpit, I want you to go back and to verify in your word that it is truly of the word of God. Because I am a fallible man. I know that surprises you. (laughs) 
You know, it's hard to walk under the umbrella of perfection. It's difficult. In fact, to obtain this, this degree and depth of humility, it's, I'm really proud of it. <laughs> Anybody can make a mistake, right? And we always want to be where the Lord would have us to be. And as things get more complicated, let us understand that we need to see things clearly, even though things are becoming as clear as mud. Okay? Promise? Promise. All right. Let us abide in these things as he continues. And as we close, he states, these things will lead you to eternal life. And he says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you. Be confident of that. And you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it is taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, continue in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. I believe that's referring to the rapture when he returns for his church. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And if I may, just a couple more things and comment as we close. Listen to what William MacDonald wrote when he stated... We should test everything by what do the scriptures say. The Bible is the final authority in all matters of Christianity. If a teaching does not agree with the Bible, then we should reject it also. As Dr. Ironside stated, H.A. Ironside was a pastor of Mooney Memorial Church in the early 1900s. As Dr. Ironside stated, used to say, if it's new, it's not true. If it's true, it's not new. I like that. The one who followed Ironside, Dr. Warren Worsby. Does it make any difference what you believe? Question. Does it make any difference what you believe? It makes all the difference in the world. You are living in crisis days, in the last hours. And the spirit of the Antichrist is working in the world. It is vitally important that you know and believe the truth and be able to detect lies when they come your way. We commit to you here at Calvary Chapel to do our uttermost to continuously feed you the truth of the Word of God. It is your job to learn and to grow and to apply and to check it out. Go back tonight and read over this chapter again. And if you have questions or you need further clarifications, that's what we are here for you, to help you to comprehend and to understand that you may grow in the Word of God. Please remember that any teaching or doctrine that distorts the character, essence, or nature of God is heresy.
For that true character, essence, and nature has been depicted for us in the beautiful life of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And there's only one Jesus that is able to save you, and it is the Jesus who went to the cross for you, and he died on your behalf and rose on the third day. And it's because of that that we can say, Amen, thank you, Lord Jesus.